This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with hoops today from The Majority Report, The Progressive, The Green News Report, Jim Hightower, The Young Turks, The David Pakman Show, and Wandering Mind 42 from YouTube. And a note for all listeners that there's a little bit of hope hidden at the end of this episode, so please try to make it to that before giving up in despair. It's a fairly innocuous story. A reactor at the Millstone nuclear plant in Waterford, Connecticut. And I remember that nuclear plant well, actually. I went to uh, college right around there. And uh, the cooler students who would live off campus, of which I was not one, uh, would all <laughs> rent like these nice houses on the water, but it would overlook literally overlook the nuclear power plant because uh, it tends to bring down the rental values, I guess. Has been shut down of, uh, because of something that in the 1960s, and I should say this, this piece from the New York Times written by Matthew L. Wald, something in the that its 1960s designers never anticipated. The water in the Long Island Sound was too warm to cool it. Under the reactor safety rules, the cooling water can be no higher than 75 degrees. On Sunday afternoon, the water's temperature soared to 76.7 degrees, prompting the operator to order the shutdown of the 880-megawatt reactor. Temperatures this summer are the warmest we've had since operations began here at Millstone. plant's first reactor, now retired, began operation in 1970. Now, this should come as little surprise. July was the hottest July on record in the United States. The water from the sound is uh, piped into the plant to absorb heat from pumps and other pieces of equipment. As the sound's temperature inched upward this summer, Dominion Power received permission from the Nuclear Regulatory Commission to measure it at three locations instead of one and to calculate the average in the hope that it would be lower. Contemplate this for a moment. Safety regulations say if the water you're pumping in to cool off this nuclear reactor is above 75 degrees, it's dangerous because it's not going to have the cooling effects as it should. So what do they do and what are they allowed to do by the regulatory agency? Devise another plan in which to measure the temperature of the water. So instead of the water just coming right in, we're going to measure it over there. We're going to measure it over there and here, and we'll take the average. I, I don't know why they didn't just go, well, wait a second. Any chance we can measure the water temperature up in a gunkwit main and the water temperature up near Greenland and the water temperature that's coming into the reactor and then average that one? It's a stunning, that in and of itself should have been the story. But apparently that did not help on Sunday. The sound's temperature usually does not peak until late August. So it could get even warmer. Eventually, engineers could change the Milford reactor's uh, intake pipe so it draws water from further below the surface where temperatures are lower. They could also sharpen their pencils and try to determine whether the plant can operate safely with cooling water above 75 degrees, but neither is a short-term project because you need to get those pencils very, 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 very sharp. In other words, decrease the margin of error. The story goes on to say that power plants in the Midwest have also experienced problems as temperatures have soared in recent weeks. In some cases, reactors shut down because the cooling water was too warm. In others, the ongoing drought had shrunken the body of water from which the cooling water is drawn. The plant's intake pipes were above the surface. Uh, and that's basically the piece. But you know what's missing, missing from this, this piece? We've got the who. Well, that would be the reactor, right, and the people involved in trying. We got the when. That took place on Sunday. We got the what. That is, that the temperature became too warm. Uh, the temperature of the water coming in is too warm. We got the where. It was in uh, Connecticut, just uh, around the corner from where I used to party as a kid. 
We got the how. Well, the temperature in the water went too high. That's how. But what seems to be missing from this is the why. No mention of July being the hottest month in the history of this country, or at least the measurements. No mention of that thing. Uh, what, what's that thing that's happening that's causing stuff to get w warmer? There's something. Let me see if I can think about what it is. Warming. Oh, I, I know what it is. It's that made-up thing by that fat guy with the airplane about global warming. It's just stunning that this guy doesn't bother to mention it in this piece. You couldn't have just said, uh, you know, drop uh, pencil sharpening and just gone directly to the point and said they may recalculate what the plant can hold and also global warming. I, I, it's just stunning. And meanwhile, this guy was one of the writers on a uh, piece back in July, weather extremes leave parts of U.S. grid buckling. And again, the only mention of global warming in this much bigger piece is that many federal agencies have officially expressed a commitment to plan for climate change. That's it. And people wonder why people aren't more concerned about uh, global warming. Because somehow, just mysteriously, for the first time in 42 years of operation, this plant is finding that the water, even when they calculate it from three different locations and average it together, is suddenly too warm. So much for the why in this reporter's story. Don't wait for answers. Just take your chances. Don't ask me why. All your life you had to stand in line. Still you're standing on your feet. Oh, all your choices made you change your mind. I'd like to move off the media-saturated non-event, which is the Republican convention for a second, and focus on a real event, and a deadly serious one at that. I'm talking about global warming. The Arctic ice cap is melting faster than even the most pessimistic scientists were predicting. A report out this week shows that the amount of sea ice in the Arctic has fallen to the lowest level on record. The sea ice has shrunk by more than 40% over the last four decades. With less ice in the Arctic Ocean, the temperature will heat up and will melt more and more of the remaining ice until the ocean will be totally free of ice in the summertime, maybe within the decade, scientists are now predicting. This will then further warm the atmosphere and melt ice sheets on land, which will make the seas and the temperatures rise still more. But leave it to the New York Times to say there's a silver lining here somewhere. The melting does, however, offer some potential benefits, the paper said, including new shipping routes and easier access to oil. That's great. Let's see now. Our consumption of oil has led to the global warming, which has melted the ice in the Arctic, so now we can get and use more oil, which will only warm the planet further until when? Until we die like an animal that can't stop eating. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be.
Last week at the Republican National Convention, GOP presidential candidate Mitt Romney pushed the Republicans' energy policy. Oil above all, drill everywhere, gut investment in clean energy, and treat climate change as a joke. You make it sound like it's not a good thing. President Obama promised to begin to slow the rise of the oceans. (laughs) And to heal the planet. My promise is to help you and your family. As if somehow your family will do well if we destabilize the climate on the only habitable planet in the universe. Well, there's that. The Obama campaign responded to Romney saying, quote, it is nothing short of terrifying to imagine a party that openly mocks climate change taking back the White House. In contrast, President Obama has suddenly begun mentioning climate change in campaign speeches. Denying climate change won't make it stop. These things won't make for a brighter future. Unlike the Republican Party platform that doesn't even mention climate change, the Democratic Party platform explicitly calls for increased investment in clean energy and for an international treaty to limit greenhouse gas emissions. But unlike their 2008 platform, the Democrats stopped short of calling for a price on carbon emissions. But Jim Rogers, the CEO of the nation's largest electric utility, Duke Energy, tells CNN that carbon pricing would be a smart solution. I think it's critical in the long term to have the smallest emissions footprint possible when you generate electricity. And so to me, addressing the issue sooner so we can phase our way into it is going to minimize the cost impact on consumers. Wow, that's an amazing statement from the CEO of the nation's largest electrical supplier. There's surprising support for that among the nation's electric utilities. Add that to the statement by CEO of ExxonMobil Rex Tillerson with his concern about global climate change. It's almost as if when these CEOs have the camera rollings, they say one thing, and then behind closed doors, they're spending millions and millions to get Republicans to say something else. Dick Cheney is known to snarl much more than he smiles. But the former VP and ex-oil executive must be grinning from ear to ear now that Mitt Romney has issued his energy plan. By his, I mean Cheney's, the one he drafted in secrecy with a cabal of industry chieftains a decade ago. They couldn't get all of their agenda enacted, however, so imagine their excitement over Romney's recent proposal, which out Cheney's Cheney. In a breathtaking surrender of America's energy future to big oil profiteers, Romney revives the maniacal fervor of the drill baby drill crowd. He pushes fracking with a vengeance, runs the filthy XL pipeline right through the heart of America, zeroes out federal tax credits for wind and solar alternatives to oil, and maintains the $4 billion a year subsidy for oil corporations, among other giveaways. Then he doubles down on energy stupidity by undoing Teddy Roosevelt's logical decision that our national lands should be under the control of, well, national policymakers. Instead, capitulating to industry's wildest dream, Romney would cede control over drilling and mining on nationally owned public land to the various states, most of which are run by industry-coddling corporate finance politicians. It's like asking a coyote to guard your last lamb chop. Who wrote this plan? Harold Hamm, for one, CEO of Continental Resources, an oil and gas fracking corporation. This Oklahoma billionaire chairs Romney's Energy Advisory Committee. A campaign aide insists that Hamm and other industry executives who showered Romney with over $10 million in campaign funds in August alone were allowed to write the policy not as payback, but simply to tap their expertise. This is Jim Hightower saying, "Uh uh-huh, expertise at serving their own interests.
A group called Climate Nexus recently put, uh, brought together some of the top scientists uh, that study uh, the Arctic Ocean. And uh, they did a call to alarm us as to what is going on there. In fact, it appears our Arctic ice seems to be disappearing. Now, uh, they showed pictures of what the Arctic ice looked like back in 1979, and it was significant, as you see there. Now, they show the pictures of what it is today. Not nearly as significant as you see. Now, I don't know if you can see quite see it there, but there's also a tiny line there, and that is actually the average of what the ice receded to, and of course every summer the ice recedes to some degree, but what the ice would recede to over the last three decades. But now the ice melting has sped up, so it now is this, which is much less than the average even of recent years. In fact, let me give you numbers on that. 45% reduction there has been in the ice compared to the 1980s and 1990s. So we've lost 45% of the Arctic sea ice. And as you look at that, that's the Arctic sea ice volume through 2012. And as you can see, it's dropping, 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 and then it is now precipitously dropping as we get closer and closer to current day. Oceans are 30% more acidic now. That's another sign of possible disaster. And the atmosphere is 5% wetter in the oceans. Now, how could the ocean be more wet? Well, if the ice melts into it, that used to be on land. And if the ocean is wetter, and then you've got more and more severe climate that you're going to have. Now, in fact, a scientist war warning in this particular case, Look, the more the ice melts, the more you have black ocean rather than white ice. It absorbs more heat. And the more heat that it absorbs, the warmer the oceans get. Well, that creates another cycle, which means that the storms in the winter this year are much more likely to be extreme. And by the way, the warmer the water is, the more ice melts. So it's a vicious cycle all around. And let me give you more scary details. Uh, Peter Wadhams from the University of Cambridge in the UK says that the ice melting is actually having the equivalent of 20 years of carbon dioxide emissions. So this vicious cycle is speeding up and speeding up and because the bottom line is if we get to a hotter temperature worldwide we're in a world of trouble. And you know, some people say, ah, oh, it's not man-made, all the scientists are wrong. But can I add a wrinkle to that I haven't heard anywhere else, which is, so what? Like, let's say the scientists are wrong and it's not man-made. Everybody agrees they're not wrong that it's actually happening. It is getting warmer. The Arctic ice, as you can see with your own eyes, is melting. It is creating these extra situations. We have to stop it either way. If we don't, the weather is going to continue to get much worse. I mean, look, any single weather event is not indicative of anything. But when you have climate change and it leads to clear differences in overall temperatures we've seen in the United States here, we broke a record for the last 12 months before July. It was the hottest 12 months recorded in American history. And then July was the hottest month ever recorded in US history. They started recording back in 1895 and it, no month has ever been hotter than July. And as you can see, the storms are picking up intensity and the quantity as we go along. And they're saying next year it's going to be even worse because we're losing the Arctic ice as well. We got to get ahead of this. Now one more amazing fact. The size of the melt this year was the size of Canada and Alaska combined. Every year we get some ice melting in the Arctic Ocean, of course in the summer, that's how it works. And then in the winter it freezes up again. But understand that every year lately 
we have been losing more and more ice that has led to worse and worse results. And the folks over at Fox News and Shell and Exxon Mobil, etc., want you to turn away and they don't want you to, to do anything about this. But as we suffer the consequences of this, as we did this year, and unfortunately it appears we will next year, and a year after that, we've got to realize at some point, it's time for action. We've got to figure out a way to try to stop this before it's too late. And I don't know what it means if it's too late. Some scientists say, hey, you know what? At most, we've got 16 years left before we hit 2 degrees Celsius. And even in the Copenhagen Accord, which was incredibly weak, all the countries agreed, well, obviously, if we hit an extra 2 degrees Celsius, we're all screwed. Tick-tock, tick-tock. 16 years is not a long time, and so far, all the scientists' projections have come earlier than they suspected. One projection has the Arctic ice melting entirely within 10 years. Tick-tock, tick-tock. It's official. The first eight months of 2012, from January to August, were the hottest on record in the continental United States since record-keeping began in 1895. No kidding. That's according to scientists at the National Climate Data Center. While record heat waves and drought made this July the hottest single month ever on record in the U.S., the whole summer, the stretch of June, July, and August, was only the third hottest summer on record in the U.S. You're saying that July was the hottest month ever recorded in the history of of the United States. Yes. Amazing. More importantly, though, each of the last 15 months has been above average for temperature, and that is an unprecedented record, says NOAA scientist Jake Crouch. That long of a stretch of months has not happened in our period of record of having temperatures this warm for that long of a period. Consistently higher temperatures are in line with climate scientists' predictions of global warming caused by humans' greenhouse gas emissions. And yet, Rush Limbaugh, after the uh, Democratic Convention, had this to say about it all. And by the way, Obama last night, was talking to me last night. Hey, climate change is not a hoax. Yes, it is, just as you are. Yeah, well, it looks like climate change may very well become an issue, an actual issue in the 2012 presidential campaign. In an interview on Sunday's Meet the Press, GOP presidential candidate Mitt Romney again minimized and dismissed the threat of climate change. I'm not in this race to slow the rise of the oceans or to heal the planet. I'm in this race to help the American people. And, of course, slowing the rise of the oceans or healing the planet would be of no help to the American people whatsoever. Now, President Obama, on the other hand, after years of not mentioning it, focused prominently on climate change in his speech to the Democratic National Convention last week. And, yes, my plan will continue to reduce the carbon pollution that is heating our planet because climate change is not a hoax. More droughts and floods and wildfires are not a joke. They are a threat to our children's future, and in this election, you can do something about it. Now, again, the candidates are poles apart in clean energy policy. Romney is against federal support for clean energy and has called on Congress to kill off the crucial wind energy production tax credit that expires at the end of this year. Romney's also for keeping billions in permanent annual taxpayer subsidies for big oil. President Obama, on the other hand, called for ending big oil subsidies and expanding federal investment in America's homegrown renewable energy industries. But we should also point out Obama touted the myth of clean coal. Speaking of hoaxes. Finally, as the nation commemorates the September 11th terrorist attacks this week, new revelations in the New York Times show that the Bush administration ignored and dismissed even more dire warnings than was previously known. And that provides a stark reminder, says Peter Sinclair of ClimateCrocs.com, that the same people who ignored and ridiculed warnings from terrorism experts prior to 9-11 are the same people who are ignoring and ridiculing fueling climate experts' warnings on the dangers of climate change today.
When I read in the New York Times that a record low amount of ice, only 24% actually covered the Arctic Ocean by the end of the summer, I thought immediately of Bill McKibben the great activist who's fighting global warming with his group 350.org. McKibben was at Fighting Bob Fest in Madison, Wisconsin last week and gave a great talk on the subject. He noted that the most important thing that happened this year wasn't the presidential campaign, but that half the Arctic ice cap has melted. As he put it, one of the biggest physical features of our planet got broken. And he warned, unless we act really quickly, it's going to get much, 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 much worse. In fact, he said, the world will break. He called the oil, gas, and oil companies a rogue industry. These guys are outlaws, he said, and it's up to us to bring them to justice. What he has in mind is a campaign of divestment, similar to the one that was launched in the 1970s and 1980s against companies doing business with the apartheid government in South Africa. He said, we need to tell the fossil fuel companies, if you want to take away the future of our planet, we'll take away your money. Please join Bill McKibben's campaign to save our planet. Go to 350.org. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. Here at Best of the Left, supporting the good works of others is our entire reason for existence. Since the beginning of 2006, I've been making this show to highlight what I consider to be some of the best of the truly liberal media. Now I'm working on several ways to promote the best progressive activism around. Ruminate for a moment on whether you enjoy this show or consider its goals to be worthwhile, and if you do, please consider supporting this work by becoming a member for as little as $5 a month or even $55 a year at the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. It's the donations of members that allow the show to continue and continue to improve. Thanks so much for your support. It turns out we're all going to (laughs) die. Now, I've told you about the Arctic ice melting before, uh, but I'm not playing. Look, we found out uh, about a couple of months ago that a third third of the Arctic sea ice had uh, melted and that that was much more than anticipated. Then, we found out a couple of weeks ago, 45% gone. Now, we find out 49% gone. Breaking records every single day. September 16th, lowest recorded Arctic sea ice ever. Okay, so, how's that for fun? Well, it's not fun at all, because it turns out the scientists say, hey, you know what? If it's all melts, it creates a vicious cycle and as you can see there, uh, 2012, watch this, watch this. This used to be normal. And then all of a sudden, it's moving, moving, melting, melting. Melt a little quicker for me. Well, that's the problem, actually. It's melting way too quick. And what you're going to see here is the area in black is what it would normally melt to in the summer, right? Average for the last several decades. In 2012, the area in white is what it's actually at. So only 49% of normal levels. Disastrous. Okay, now, how disastrous? Well, scientists are ready to tell you. Uh, Here is a panel of scientists put together uh, by Greenpeace. They had a uh, get-together. Jim Hansen was there, one of the top climate scientists in the world, works for NASA. Here are some quotes. Quote, humans are really running out of time. That doesn't sound good. Uh, James Hansen. It's hard for the public to realize because they stick their head out the window and don't see much going on. But the reality is that's because they don't live in the Arctic. If they lived in the Arctic, they'd see a lot going on, which is ice melting in ways they've never seen before. On September 16th, as I told you, Arctic ice covered just 1.32 million square miles, the lowest extent ever recorded, 49% below the 1979 average. And that average held for a long, long time until recently. And Kumi Naidu, who's part of the Greenpeace International Board, in fact, he's the head of it, had a hilarious line. He said, what happens in the Arctic doesn't stay in the Arctic. And that's so true. And let me just explain that to you real quick. Look, there's several different things that are going on here. First of all, uh, because of global warming, more ice is melting. But when the ice melts, it sets off another reaction, which is that uh, we, we have less white as in the ice and the snow, to reflect the heat back up. Instead, the darkness of the oceans and the ground absorbs the heat, 
thereby making it even hotter. Uh-oh, well, we just built a vicious cycle. Second of all, methane gas that was trapped there for a long time gets released. Uh-oh, that makes it worse. And when the ice caps are lifted, you know what they do? They immediately start drilling for oil. In fact, that's exactly what Shell's doing now. So what does that do? Well, that creates more fuel, that creates more carbon emissions, and that makes global warming even worse. It's a triple whammy. Now, James Hansen explains again, quote, there's a huge gap between what is understood by the scientific community and what is known by the public. Unfortunately, that gap is not being closed. What he's telling you is, you're not understanding it. You need to be in a panic. Now, I remember the last time Republicans made fun of a guy who was in mid-panic. They said, oh, this Richard Clark is going around the White House with his hair on fire. He left over from the Clinton White House. He better calm down. Who was he? He was the counterterrorism advisor that was telling the Bush administration, Al-Qaeda is coming, Al-Qaeda is coming, please defend the country, we, we might suffer a catastrophic attack. Turns out Richard Clark was right, unfortunately as you look at the numbers, James Hansen is right, and let me show you one last graph so that you can begin to get a sense of how out of control this is. Now this was all the little squiggly lines you see are all the projections that the scientists had. They thought, well, look, we know based on global warming and climate change that the Arctic ice is going to melt, and it's going to melt over this period of time. Turns out they were wrong. That red line is the line that actually happened. It is worse than their projections. And you see 2012 there, diving off of the board? Yeah, we're in a world of trouble. The scientists thought it was going to be terrible. It's actually worse. So, look, we're already at 0.8 degrees Celsius warmer than uh, we were. And uh, world uh, leaders have agreed that if we get to 2 degrees Celsius, it's game, set, and match. Catastrophic climate change. You know that we have to keep 80% of the fuel that we can tap into, oil, other carbon-based fuel, etc., in the ground... You know, in order for us not to reach that two degrees Celsius. Now, with those trillions of dollars that they're going to make for off that oil and gas and coal, etc., you think they're going to keep 80% of it in the ground? <laughs> they're not going to keep it in the ground. In fact, the Arctic melts, they don't see that as a warning. They see it as an opportunity to make even more money from oil. And we're diving full steam ahead, including, unfortunately, the Obama administration that says, oh, yeah, 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 I mean, you want to drill in the Arctic, ah, it'll be fine. It's not like there's going to be any disasters or anything. By the way, in the Gulf Coast, we barely got uh, to the BP disaster, and after months, we finally plugged it. But we had hundreds of airports nearby, thousands of boats nearby. We had all the Coast Guard that could help nearby. If there's a spill in the Arctic Ocean, on top of all of the global warming and climate change uh, consequences, oh, we're not going to be able to stop that spill. It's one disaster on top of another on top of another. And unfortunately, James Hansen is right, the American people don't get it, because they are living in a bubble of propaganda. Uh, I know a lot of you aren't in New York, but you f certainly have followed this, and um, many times as New York goes, uh, the rest of the country goes. So uh, this is uh, somewhat encouraging. and just also goes to show you the, the power of activists. I think uh, oh, we've had everybody from Mark Rothlo on this program. We've had um, Josh Fox on this program. We've had uh, more policy-oriented people on this program. But according to the New York Times... A few months after Governor Andrew Cuomo was poised to approve hydraulic fracturing, fracturing in several struggling New York counties, his administration is reversing course and starting the regulatory process over. 
Ten days ago, after nearly four years of review by state regulators, the governor bowed to entreaties from environmentalists to conduct another study. This one, an examination of potential impacts on public health, as if you really need to look into public health when you're deciding to put all sorts of unnamed poisons into the ground where our water is. And on Friday... This is the last week. State environmental officials said they would restart the regulatory rulemaking process, requiring them to repeat a number of formal steps, including holding a public hearing and almost certainly pushing a decision into next year. This is, all, uh, this is not over, uh, ladies and gentlemen, but it is encouraging. In this instance, the more you delay these things, the better chance it has of not happening. So uh, kudos to all the activists out there. Uh, Bobby Kennedy's quoted in this uh, quite a bit in this uh, New York Times piece. But I uh, just wanted to, I don't know, it's a feel-good story of the day. I'm joined by Dr. Jonathan Trent. He's an Omega Project scientist at the NASA Ames Research Center. He's joining us today with his personal views. He is not speaking for NASA or for the U.S. government. Uh, uh, Dr. Trent, let's start with the Omega Project, which I came across uh, uh, maybe about a month or so ago. I've been doing some reading about it. Give our audience broadly a sense of what that project is and what it's looking to do. Well, so OMEGA is an acronym, David. It's an acronym for Offshore Membrane Enclosures for Growing Algae. And in this case, we're growing algae to look for the possibility of using them to make biofuels, in particular aviation fuel. But we're doing that by growing the algae on wastewater that's currently pumped offshore from our major coastal cities. And really, it's a NASA project because it's an attempt at doing a sustainable production of of fuels, in this case, algae-based biofuels, to re make a significant dent in replacing fossil fuels for all the good reasons that you know about environmental and social. So for people who may not understand the connection between uh, getting fuel from algae, what is, it, what is the process exactly through which that happens? Is it a, an extract of the algae? I mean, let's really get into the nitty-gritty here. Well, in fact, the oil that we're recovering from the deep earth, probably somewhere like 90% of the oil that's currently being recovered from the deep earth and under the sea um, comes from oil that was produced by microalgae. These are microscopic organisms, you know, a fraction of the size of the diameter of your hair. They're microscopic and not visible to the naked eye. But they produce a lot of oil. They store oil the same way we store fats. And they make a lot of it. And there's a lot of these cells. And they've lived for a long, long time. And they've always produced these oils as a, as a storage product. Now, the algae get extremely abundant. And when they die, they settle to the bottom. And their oils are kind of uh, sort of pressed out of them under the sediments in the sea and forming these pockets of what are now fossil oil. But these same types of algae live in the oceans now. And they produce and store oil. And we can grow them in fairly large quantities. And we can grow them on wastewater. And we can squeeze or extract chemically the oils out of them. And what's left over then is something that's also very usable. It's um, you know, protein and nucleic acid, stuff that can be used for making animal feed or fertilizer. There's a lot of different uses for these microalgae. So essentially what we're talking about conceptually is the idea that using wastewater, which is already water that, that otherwise is going to either be sent out to the oceans, as you mentioned, or otherwise have to be processed there, you could, you could grow this algae, which then would have two really outputs. One would be a, a fuel that could actually be used, as you said, potentially to power aircraft, but also what's left over after that has been extracted or removed could then also be used in turn 
to feed animals. So it's really, we're talking about uh, affecting two industries, really, both uh, energy and fuel for, for moving vehicles and moving people, but also feeding animals, which is quite incredible. Well, actually, it's it's even better than that, David. It's it's really it's really when you think about biofuels. Biofuels are attractive because it's a it's a repetitive process. It's a process that's sustainable. Unlike mining the fossil fuels that we're doing now, we could conceivably grow similar organisms that produce those fossil fuels and harvest the oils from them and then regrow them, giving us a sustainable source of of liquid fuel. Now, as I mentioned, what's left over after you remove the oil from these algae is still usable, but the algae also clean the wastewater that's going out into the ocean. So when we now pump wastewater into the ocean, it causes, in many cases, algae blooms in the ocean. And these algae blooms are not necessarily desirable or even good for the ocean. So basically, when you think about biofuels, there's been an ongoing debate about fuel versus food. There's this whole ethical dilemma of growing some kind of crop that produces oil or just biomass to be able to make a replacement for fossil fuel or using that same land to grow something we can eat. Now, with a global population of 7 billion going onward, you know, predictions to being 9 billion by the year 2050, this issue about food versus fuel is really important. And freshwater is even more important. And so when I entered the field um, like four or five years ago with its support from Google to look into this question, it was a project I called Sustainable Energy for Spaceship Earth. The first thing I realized is that whatever we're going to do to make a biofuel has to not compete with agriculture for water, for fertilizer, or for land. And so really what you're alluding to here is a lot of the arguments over ethanol, right? Which is you're, you're, you're using corn and that requires a certain amount of square footage to grow that, and it can only either be used for the ethanol or for food. It's one or the other, and you're saying you're, you're stepping outside of that paradigm here. Absolutely. In fact, that was a given. <clears throat> it was an absolute must that what we have to find is a way to make biofuels without competing with agriculture. And so the algae, which, by the way, produce scads more fuel than corn, I mean, to put this in perspective, so corn's producing about 18 gallons of biodiesel per acre per year. Um, algae are producing 2,000 gallons of biodiesel per acre per year. So you're talking 100 times the efficiency per square foot, basically. Yeah, absolutely. That's so, incredible. So it, it, if, you, if you look at the, the literature, you realize that these microalgae, at least some species of these microalgae, are really the way to go. The problem is, how can we grow them at this enormous scale, again, without competing with agriculture? And the solution that we came up with, um, or I guess that I came up with some years ago now, was to suggest that we could do it offshore in these floating bioreactors. And then the problem was, um, can we really do that? I mean, is it really feasible? The devil is in the details. And so we've spent the last two years with funding from NASA and from the California Energy Commission to really dig into this and ask feasibility questions. And I've, I'm you know, kind of glad to say that we've made some significant progress along the lines of understanding what could go wrong and how we might get around those problems. Let's talk a little bit about the kind of broader impact of a project like this. I mean, when we talk about the future of energy and the future of fuels, there's kind of a number of lines of discussion. One is, is it a type, is it an energy source that will run out or is it one that, that is renewable to some extent? Then the second side that I see is the environmental impact, which is how will the harvesting, creating, or mining of this type of fuel affect the environment? And then three is the geopolitical, right? Who are we buying this energy or the, this, this raw material from? Uh, along which of those lines are the biggest objections to the Omega Project? Because I'm sure, as with any project, there are some detractors. Well, actually, we looked at all three of those. And in fact, all three of those motivated us to do the project. <clears throat> Excuse me. So if you think about, um, if you think about the implications, the social political implications of being able to distribute the production of, of a liquid fuel um, and that it would be directly proportional to the size of the city and most of our world cities are on the coast, um, 
we would be pumping our wastewater offshore anyway. And here's a way to clean the wastewater. So environmentally, we're actually doing something positive rather than dumping wastewater into the ocean, losing the phosphate, losing the nitrogen that's in that wastewater, capturing those nutrients as fertilizer for our algae crops that are ultimately part of a scenario that says we're going to make fuel out of this waste stream. In fact, the, the fundamental idea of Omega is to try to understand how we can close, in NASA we call them life support loops. You know, how do you utilize what is currently considered a waste stream and turn it into a resource? So that's what we started out to try to do. And it turns out with algae, our wastewater, our sewage, is a wonderful resource for growing algae. Now, the other part of the environmental impact is wastewater is freshwater and it's being pumped into a saltwater environment. So that we're growing in these floating bioreactors that are offshore, we're growing freshwater algae. That means if they escape into the environment, if something goes wrong in our modular system, so one of the modules leaks, then we algae into the water that can't live in seawater because they're freshwater algae, and we leak wastewater into the ocean that we're currently already dumping there. So the environmental impact of this system itself is rather minor. And in fact, you can turn that around and you can say, wow, the ocean, when you put these floating structures out there, they'll create like a floating reef and increase biodiversity. It's, these are well known to be fish attraction devices. Um, we may really, in fact, be in a position to improve the local biodiversity and, and no longer dump our wastewater out there. So there's, there's lots of ways we can turn this around. And from different angles, you can imagine that it has positive and very beneficial effects. Now, the political issue, that is having our own local source of oil or liquid fuel, globally would, I think, solve a lot of problems, not to mention the environmental implications, but the social political aspects of, of where the oil is now currently being harvested and distributed is huge. I mean, you talk about that all the time. No question about it. Well, I want to encourage everybody to check out Dr. Jonathan Trent's TED Talk, which is which is compelling, and he also talks uh, much more about these issues. I wish we had more time today. The one issue we'll talk about next time, hopefully, if you come back, is how soon will we get big oil companies trying to prevent this project from moving forward if it's not already happening. But we'll save that for another time. We've been speaking with Dr. Jonathan Trent. He is an Omega Project scientist at the NASA Ames Research Center, today giving us his personal views on all of these topics, not speaking for NASA or the government. Thanks so much, Dr. Trent. A real uh, pleasure. Ice Age heat wave can't complain If the world's at large, why should I remain? Walked away to another planet Okay, what what do you think is the best thing of the thing about the show that is best and most appealing to to somebody who listens or watches? Um, let's see. You see, I would have to think about that. <laughs> is, this, is this the that hard of a question? Is it that is. What? It is a hard question. It's like, what is the meaning of life? You can't just uh, you can't just throw something out there. All right. Well, you know what? None of us know what the, what what's good about this show. None what we know is have... we have a show. We know the show exists. Pretty much. Well, if that doesn't make you curious, I don't know what will. Check out The David Pakman Show at davidpakman.com. What's the worst that could happen? Have you ever found yourself saying that to someone when you're trying to convince them to do something? But I don't think I want to eat the raw sea slug. Come on, what's the worst that could happen? You don't really worry about that worst if you don't think it's going to happen. And if it does, well, you've always recovered from it in the past. That kind of thinking has worked out okay for us so far. But now, with six billion people and technologies that might be able to change the planet, it's conceivable that there may be some worst that we can't recover from. Take global warming, for example. If you listen to the worst predictions, we may be in for a nasty future with storms, droughts, floods, epidemics, famine. But what if that worst isn't going to happen? What if it's not true? Or that we're not the ones doing it? it? Seems like a pretty important question to figure out, what with the fate of the human race and all. Which is probably why there's still some bitter fighting going on about it right now. What if I told you I think I've found an argument that makes that whole bitter question of whether it's really happening or not moot? An argument where we don't need to know whether it's true or not in order to still decide what to do or not do. 
an argument that leads to a conclusion that even the most hardened skeptic and the most panicked activist both can agree on. Sounds impossible, doesn't it? Well, it seems like it to me, too, which is why I'm putting this argument out there, to check to see if my reasoning is delusional, because frankly, no one I've shown it to so far has been able to poke a hole in it, and it leads to a conclusion I find inescapable and terrifying. So, here it is. When faced with uncertainty like we are with climate change, it becomes useful to look at the different possibilities for the future in order to be able to compare them side by side. So one of the first things to look at is whether human-caused global climate change is real or not. There are two basic possibilities, one that it turns out to be false and one that it turns out to be true. Now, this is a key point because this is where we get to set aside that whole contentious debate about whether the globe is warming and we're the ones doing it. We do that by acknowledging that no one can know with absolute certainty what the physical world will do. All reasonable people should be able to admit to the possibility that they might have a mistaken understanding about reality. So, at this point we all agree these are both possibilities. The second thing to look at is what action on climate change do we take. Let's make column A yes for significant action and column B no for little to no significant action. What that gives us is a grid with four boxes, each box representing a basic scenario for the future. Let's take a look at what each of those futures might look like. The first is the future where we did take action on climate change, but climate change turned out to not be true, not be real. So what would the consequence of that be? Well, wasted money mostly. This is what the skeptics are warning us about. Increased taxation, burdensome regulation, bloated government. Now, for the purposes of contrast, let's take this to the extreme. Let's say we end up with massive layoffs caused by draconian regulation, which sparks a recession, which spirals into a depression, which cascades worldwide, and we end up with a global economic depression, which makes the 1930s look like a cakewalk. Okay, how about this scenario where we didn't take action and we didn't need to, so we made the right decision. No big economic consequences, continued prosperity. I'm sure we had some problems, but climate change wasn't one of them. How about this scenario where we did take action on climate change, and it's a good thing too because the doomsayers turned out to be right. Well, we still got the cost associated with that, but in this case it was money well spent because the money and the regulation allowed us to counteract climate change. It still happened, but we managed it. It's a different world, but it's livable. Now how about this scenario over here, where the doomsayers turned out to be right, and we didn't take action. Now since we granted the extreme up here, we should grant the extreme down here. And in that case, it gets kind of ugly, because we've got an economic, political, social, environmental, and public health catastrophes on a global scale. This is your worst case scenario. This is the sea level rising 10, 20 feet, entire coastal countries disappearing, hundreds of millions of people worldwide displaced, crowding in on their neighbors, causing widespread warfare over scarce resources and long-standing hatreds. We've got entire forests die and burn, massive droughts alternating with catastrophic floods. We've got the, the uh, breadbaskets of the USA and Russia turned to dust bowls causing catastrophic famines, terrible disease epidemics, spreading like wildfire, hurricanes like Katrina becoming the norm. I mean, this is a world straight out of science fiction. Economic collapse because the global economy has been hit by crisis after crisis. This is a world that makes Al Gore look like a sissy Pollyanna with no guts who sugar-coated uh, the bad news. Okay, so we've simplified things here a little bit. The clue should be the smiley faces. Any diagram of smiley faces certainly has some complexities underneath. And do this yourself. Add the complexities back in. Use pencil and paper and put some odds in here. Use the, uh, play with the mild cases, not just the extreme cases on both sides. Put in some intermediates in between these dichotomies. And I think you'll see that the following argument still arrives at the same inescapable conclusion. So here's the argument. You can think of it in terms of row thinking versus column thinking. Our future <clears throat> will fall roughly in one of these four boxes. Now, because climate change may or may not be real, we cannot know for certain which row the future will lie in. What we can know for certain, because we control it, is which column the future will lie in. So it's a bit like buying a lottery ticket. You buy lottery ticket A or ticket B, and then you sit back and wait to see what the laws of physics deal out as a result on your ticket. So let's say we pick lottery ticket A. At that point we're determining that our future lies somewhere between a global economic depression and a different but livable world. So here's a scenario 
where we made a mistake. We acted when we didn't need to. And here's the cost of that mistake, a global economic depression. This is the risk associated with buying lottery ticket A. Well, that sounds like a pretty scary risk, so let's see if we have a better option over here on lottery ticket B. If we pick column B, and it turns out to be the right choice, then hey presto, we're happy. And if it turns out to be a mistake, what would the cost of that mistake be? The end of the world? Well, the end of the world as we know it. The globe will still be here. Humans will still be here. The species will survive. But this is a very different, much more hostile place. This is the risk associated with picking column B, whether by deliberate choice or, and here's the scary part, by default of inaction because we were busy debating, trying to guess which road the future would land in. Notice that this cost down here, this consequent, incorporates a threat to the economy that this one up here does, but with some added bonus features as well. Also, it gets worse than that because in the last five years, we've learned that it's possible, it's plausible, that this might happen abruptly in a very short time period, perhaps as short as a decade or two. So we're not just talking abstract grandchildren here, we're talking you and me. Now, don't take my word for it on this. Don't take anyone's word for it. Do this to yourself. Listen to information on climate change, and when you hear it, ask yourself, are they talking about guessing at rows, or are they talking about choosing between columns? Because I think you'll see that however you construct this, the argument still leads to the same inescapable conclusion which is this. When faced with uncertainty about our future, the only responsible choice, the only defensible choice, really the only choice is column A in order to eliminate this as a possibility. Because the risk of not acting far outweighs the risk of acting. So, there's my silver bullet argument. So what do you personally do about it? Well, here's some good news for a change. In fact, it sounds too good to be true because it's stunningly easy. What you do is spread the word. Because the only way we truly get into column A is changes in public policy. And those only change when enough people demand it. So you do what you can to spread an understanding of this argument and to increase public demand for column A. You make this part of your thinking, part of your conversations. And you forward this video on to others so it changes their thinking. And then they forward it to others and they forward it to still others. Imagine that. Because in today's information age, you can change the culture. You can help change public policy. And remarkably, sometimes just a few mouse clicks is all it takes to start an avalanche. Hi, Jay. Uh, my name's Liz. I've listened for quite a while, and I wanted, I think you do good work, but I wanted to bring up a small but I think important um, kind of objection. You seem like a pretty reliable feminist ally, and I thought you should know that every time in the show intro when you say that Comedian Lee Camp is going to be on, I brace myself for his little intro where he talks about his moment of clarity, because it starts out with the corporate raping and pillaging or something like that. And it's pretty well established in uh, feminist circles and in rape survivor advocate circles that the use of rape as a metaphor can be triggering for rape survivors. Um, I know that my friends who are survivors have told me that it can be really uncomfortable to hear that. And um, for that reason, I think that it should maybe be removed or reworked somehow because it is uncomfortable. And I think that um, using rape as a metaphor as opposed to using the word rape to describe the crime of rape kind of normalizes and weakens it. And I know that the discussion of rape culture can be really uncomfortable, even within uh, supposedly progressive circles, and that people get a lot of backlash for it. But I still thought it was important to bring up because I know that you probably don't want to alienate your listeners who are rape or sexual assault survivors or their allies. Thank you. Bye. 
Thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or an activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. So I did want to respond to the female caller we just heard from and her concerns. Uh, you know, I certainly attempt to be uh, sensitive to these sorts of issues, and so before... Um, you know, before coming on the show and, and saying what I thought, I certainly had some thoughts, but I wanted to check in with some other people. I, I check in with Lee Camp himself on, on the subject and an intelligent uh, feminist who I trust on subjects like this. And, uh, and, and so all, we all had thoughts, but it turned out that the intelligent feminist had uh, the best and, and best constructed thoughts uh, from her email. And I, I didn't ask if I could record her on the show, so she'll remain anonymous for now. Um, but this is what she said, and this is what I agree with. She says, Yes, it's true that the word rape can trigger bad memories, etc., for rape victims, but I don't think the solution is to hide from the word. And I also think it is appropriate to use rape as a metaphor. I don't think it normalizes rape. I think generally people only use it as a metaphor to say that something is really, truly terrible. I think Lee has it exactly right when he talks about the raping and pillaging by corporations. That's meant to signal that Lee thinks what corporations are doing is not just stealing from us, but also stripping us of our dignity and self-worth, making us afraid and defensive. So there you go. I mean, that's pretty well put uh, and so just to to build on that um there it's definitely not a black and white issue as to whether or not the word can be used as a metaphor as is always the case in situations like this it's all about context so if you're at, you know as lee is talking about you know corporations legal obligation to maximize profits which leads inevitably to the severe degradation of natural and human resources alike, all at the expense of, you know, human dignity, self-worth, happiness, and health, then, you know, rape is not such a terrible uh, metaphor. Now, if you are have to use an ATM that's not the same as your bank and they charge you a $3 fee, then saying that you got raped by the bank for being charged a fee basically makes you an asshole and you shouldn't do that. So... You know, as always, context matters, and you know, for anyone who j just instinctually ha has a problem with the word, you know, I'm I'm sorry, but I don't. I, I basically agree with with the email that running away from the word and and, and p pulling words that anyone has a problem with out of the lexicon is just not the way to go. I think that using words appropriately is the way to go. So that's that. And I just want to remind everyone uh, once again, as I will continue to do, uh, that Best of Left is running for a couple of different awards. There happen to be happening simultaneously. Uh, podcast awards at podcastawards.com are in the nomination process right now. So please head over there and nominate the show for the best produced category as well as the uh, news and politics category. And... I just learned recently about the first annual Stitcher Awards, and so uh, it is not as easily uh, linkable, but the links are in the show notes. You can probably see it on your device you're listening to this on, or uh, or at the website, of course, in the show notes of this show, uh, and go to, or just Google, that, that would work too, uh, 2012 Stitcher Awards would get you there, and uh, you can nominate the show for the news and politics category there as well. Uh, all of that is greatly appreciated. It, of course, is all about uh, helping more people find the show. You know, if, if the show is either nominated or actually wins awards, then it helps more people find it. If you think the show is, is worthwhile, then hopefully you think that more people hearing it is also worthwhile. So that's it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening and supporting the show in, in all of these ways I always ask you to do, especially to those who actually donate to the show, either by becoming a member or making one-time donations. That is how the show survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and by spreading the word about individual clips you particularly like through your social networks, which can be done at bestoftheleft.com. Stay tuned into the show between episodes by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every third day, thanks entirely to the members and Donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Take you 
It's just a fun friend.